A few weeks ago, we were stunned by the news that an unspeakable massacre had been committed in Israel. Suddenly, without warning, many perished. Suddenly. We know that there were many among a, a large group of young people who were engaged in a celebration that in many ways had immoral overtones, who were engaged in sinful behavior. Suddenly, without warning, their lives were cut short. We regularly hear of similar occasions where suddenly a large number of people perish. We hear of, of earthquakes with staggering loss of life. We hear of mass shootings where suddenly a large number of people are mercilessly mowed down. Time and again we hear of calamities. Of course, that's nothing new. This has been happening in this fallen world of ours. And yet there are certain events that catch our attention. There are certain events that almost overwhelm us. And then the question arises, why did these people perish in this way? The history of this world is marked with such events. Let me just give you a small sampling. In 1556, an earthquake struck China when 830,000 people died. Nearly a million people perished. 1923, there was an earthquake in Japan where 140,000 people died. 1970, a typhoon hit Bangladesh where 300,000 people died. And we all remember the tsunami of 2004 when more than 200,000 people perished. And so we could go on and on. So the question is, what does this mean? And then I think not only of the, the people in Israel who were massacred, how about all the terrorists that died? How do we respond to that when we hear that they are mowed down, that they are killed, they are put to death? Do we secretly think, well, they got what they deserved? And in a sense, that's true. But the question is, what makes us say such things? And when we hear about these young people who were uh, feasting in the desert in, in, a, in, an, in an ungodly way, what crosses our mind when we hear that suddenly death strikes and these lives were cut short and suddenly, while they were partying, they suddenly stood before their maker. That's why I believe that the passage that we will be considering with God's help this morning will shed some light on this and will, will instruct us from the mouth of Christ how we are to respond when we hear of such calamities. And so let's turn to Luke 13 and read again the first five verses. Let's hear God's word in our text for this morning. There were present at that season some that told him of the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. And Jesus answering said unto them, Suppose ye that these Galileans were sinners above all the Galileans, because they suffered such things. I tell you, nay, but except ye repent ye shall all likewise perish. Or those 18, upon whom the tower in Siloam fell and slew them, think ye that they were sinners above all men that dwelt in Jerusalem? I tell you, nay. But except ye repent, ye shall all likewise perish. And so in this passage, we have Christ's remarkable 
an urgent call to repentance. First of all, a timely call, a call that he makes in light of two tragedies that had happened in the immediate context of this passage, a timely call. There was an occasion for him to call sinners to repentance. Secondly, a very personal call, except ye repent. Very personally to the people that stood before him, except ye repent. And then finally, a very urgent call, because he said, you shall likewise perish. If you don't repent, then you will perish as certainly as the Galileans perished and as certainly as the people perished upon whom the Tower of Siloam fell. So Christ's call to repentance, a timely call, a personal call, and an urgent call. So we read to you also the concluding verses of Luke 12, in which Christ clearly was speaking about the judgment to come. Clearly was talking about the necessity of being prepared for that hour when the Son of Man comes. And he asked the question, the urgent question, whether we are ready for that moment. And it's possible that in light of that teaching that there may have been some who then asked him the question, well, how about what just happened to those Galileans? Because what happened apparently, and this is the first time that the name of Pilate is mentioned, and we get some insight how brutal his reign was in Israel, apparently what happened at the time of the Passover but also the Galileans would have come from Galilee to Jerusalem while they were in the midst of preparing their Passover lambs when the blood was flowing of the Passover lambs that suddenly a contingent of soldiers from Pilate just descended upon them and mercilessly began to slaughter these Galileans so that literally their blood was mingled with the blood of the Passover lambs. This was a very shocking thing. It was as shocking as what just happened on October 7. It was a brutal, uncalled-for massacre. But who? Who were the people that were asking this? Probably Jews. Probably, perhaps, scribes and Pharisees. And... It's very well possible that they asked this question, that they informed Jesus of this out of very self-righteous movements. So their assessment obviously was that God's judgment came down upon the heads of the Galileans. And Jesus knew exactly what they were thinking. And he said to them, do you think Suppose ye that these Galileans were sinners above all the Galileans because they suffered such things. And most likely, most likely these self-righteous Jews believed exactly that. Because the Galileans did not have a good reputation, certainly not in Judea. The Galileans were known for being troublemakers for rabble-rousers. They were quite militant in their opposition to the oppression of the Romans. And probably, somehow, Pilate was nervous about what might happen in Jerusalem at the time of the Passover. Probably something spooked him, and he used the occasion to brutally come down upon these Galileans and to slaughter them and to massacre them. You see, those Jews, especially the scribes and Pharisees, they consider themselves morally very superior to those Galileans. And no doubt they were thinking they had this coming. These Galileans, these brutes, can anything good come from Galilee? This was God's judgment. 
God judged them because they were great sinners. That was obviously what they were thinking. And Christ again demonstrates that he was not only very man, but he was very God. He knew exactly what was on their mind. The congregation, this is so convicting for us. Because ultimately, Christ is asking that question of us today. Do you think that the people who perished in Israel, do you think that those Hamas warriors who were killed, do you think that they were greater sinners because they suffered these things, because they perished? So what does Jesus do? After he said to them, they, but except you repent, you shall all likewise perish. I will come back to that, of course. But he then uses another illustration of a tragedy that had just happened recently. Apparently, near the pool of Siloam, there was a, a tower as well. Some think, some commentators think that that tower was under construction. That actually, that it was being constructed with blood money from Pilate himself. And that suddenly, suddenly, this tower collapsed. And because of its collapse, 18 people died suddenly, without warning, without, without there being any opportunity to repent. Suddenly, their lives were cut off. Solomon speaks about that, does he not? He says, some who harden their heart are cut off suddenly, and that without remedy. And so why does Jesus use this example? Well, this time, not Galileans were the ones who perished, but they were inhabitants of Jerusalem. They were citizens of Jerusalem. And so Christ wants to expose here the wicked pride of the Jews and Pharisees who deemed themselves morally superior. And so Christ uses an illustration of a tragic accident. And so we would connect that, for instance, to what happens when earthquakes strikes, when tornadoes strike, when hurricanes strike, when people suddenly and often large numbers die tragically. And so he says to, these, to the crowd that stands before him, and to these scribes and Pharisees, do you think that those people who perished as a result of that collapse of the tower, do you think that they were sinners above all men that dwelled in Jerusalem? So the point that Jesus obviously is making, congregation, and a point we need to really consider carefully, that we are not morally superior to those who perish tragically. We're not even morally superior to those Hamas warriors who are also dying as a result of what's happening. And we have a tendency, we all have a tendency to look down upon certain population groups, upon certain kinds of people, and if we, are, if we are brutally honest with ourselves, when we hear about the, uh, the terrorists being mowed down, being killed, being shot to death, we are, we are, if we're honest, we say, well, they had it coming. They deserve it. As if we are morally superior to them. The point Christ is making, no sinner is ever morally superior to another sinner. And I'm not trying to minimize the brutality of what happened there, but let's never forget that that brutality has its origin in the human heart. God's Word says that the heart of man is desperately wicked. Who can know it? So all the manifestation of brutality, all the manifestation of human wickedness, all the violence that happens in this world has its origin in the human heart. 
which is a cesspool of iniquity. And the only reason why we have not committed such gross and evil things is only the preserving grace of God. And so what Jesus is doing here, what he's teaching us, he's teaching us and he's confronting us, let's put it that way, he's confronting us with the irresistible temptation when things like this happen is to engage in what I would call the logic of the friends of Job. The logic of the friends of Job. I remember my dad often saying, he said, when tragedy strikes, suddenly the friends of Job come out of the woodwork. What he meant by that is that people are very quick to jump to conclusions why certain things happen to certain people. And what Christ is saying, don't go there. Do not focus on why they died. Unless you repent, you will likewise perish. And so the friends of Job, they meant well. But what did they say to him? Job 22, verse 5, Is not thy wickedness great, and thine iniquities infinite? They concluded that Job must have been a very wicked and evil man, because otherwise all these calamities would not have struck him. But then think of John 9, verse 2, where we read about the man who was born blind. What is the question that the disciples ask? They say, Master, who did sin, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? So they put a connection between his blindness and divine judgment. Whose fault is this? Who is to be blamed for the fact that this man is blind? Is it a judgment upon his sin or upon his parents? In Acts 28, where we read of the Apostle Paul surviving that shipwreck, and he ends up on the little island of Melita. You know the story. And they make a fire to warn themselves. They've just come out of the, out of the ocean. They're dripping wet. And then among the brush that they're using to make the fire was a very venomous snake. A snake that attached itself to the Apostle Paul. What do we read? It says, when the barbarians saw the venomous beast hang on his hand, they said among themselves, no doubt, this man is a murderer, whom, though he hath escaped the sea, yet vengeance suffereth not to live. And so what Christ is teaching, and this is so powerful congregation, he is forbidding us to draw those kind of conclusions. The point Christ is making, when people die, they never die unjustly. When people perish, even if they perish suddenly, when they perish unexpectedly, when they perish as a result of a massacre, or because a tower falls on top of them, sinners die because they are sinners' congregation. There's not a, there's not a human being in this world that dies undeservedly. Death is the wages of sin. We all, all of us, we need to understand this, all of us have forfeited the right to live. There's not a single human being who deserves the right to live. The only reason why we are alive today is because God has seen fit to spare our life, to keep us. Solomon says, all things alike come alike to all. There's one event to the righteous and to the wicked. And so when our lives are extended, especially if there are any among us, who if they are truly honest, 
before God. That's what we need to be today. That if death had overtaken you, what would have happened to you? Because in this past week, a tower could have fallen on you. You could have been, you would have, you could have been the victim of violent crime. This past week, the thin thread of your life could have been cut through. Suddenly, your life could have ended. And how would your life have ended if that had happened? What would have happened to you if you had perished in this past week? And the reason you're here today, if you are still not reconciled with God, the reason you're here today is because God is giving you space to repent. Even Jezebel was given space to repent. We read that in Revelation 2 verse 21. And I gave her space to repent of her fornication, and she repented not. Are there still those among us today of whom that it is true? And God has spared you until this moment. God has extended your life. God is giving you space to repent. And is it still true of you that you have not repented? And I will again explain in a moment what we mean by repenting, but I think most of us understand that you still ignore God. You are still ignoring His Word. You are still going your way instead of turning to God. And so Christ's obvious point is that He forbids us to speculate when people die tragically. That's what we are forbidden to do. And this is if Christ is saying in a very nice way, but very bluntly to these people, it's none of your business why they died. They died because they were sinners. Granted, the, the, the circumstances were tragic, but every single one that died among the Galileans was a sinner. And everyone upon whom that tower fell was a sinner. Everyone who perished in Israel was a sinner. And that's why he literally, he, he turns the tables on his audience. And he does it out of love and concern. What a beautiful example we have here, congregation, that Christ was a Savior who was burdened with the souls of the people who stood before him. He was looking at men and women who were in danger of perishing. And because of the burden that he had for them, he lovingly and very plainly says, forget about what happened to these people. But unless, except ye repent, ye shall all likewise perish. So what the Savior of sinners is unapologetically saying, that if you die in your sins, if you die without having repented, you will perish. Jesus never hid that truth from his people. He was very open, very straightforward, time and again warning of the judgment to come for those who live and who die in their sins. And so what this text is telling us, what this text is giving us is God's commentary and perspective on the tragic news of our day. But Christ is teaching us every calamity, every tragedy, every disaster is a loud call to repentance and self-examination. Except ye repent, that brings us to our second point, very personal call, except Ye repent, ye shall all likewise perish. So let's talk again about that very important word of repentance. 
What does the word repentance mean? Well, in the Old Testament, the word turn, which appears about 3,000 times in the Old Testament, it literally means a change of direction. So the implication is that by nature, we as sinners are all moving in the wrong direction. By nature, we live with our back towards God, and we're moving away from Him. So repentance means a change of direction. But in the New Testament, it means a change of mind, a change of thinking. And if you look it up, you can study the etymology of the word repentance. It comes from the French, and it includes the idea of thinking. Our thinking changes, and the two belong together. A change of mind and a change of direction. So boys and girls, let me tell you a very simple story to explain what that means. A story from my own life. I was once visiting with one of my elders in an area that I knew, I thought I knew fairly well. And that evening we had to visit someone. And I said to my elder, I know where they live. And we started driving. The elder said to me, he said, Pastor, I don't know, but I think we're moving in the wrong direction. And I reassured him that I thought we were moving in the right direction. And he kept saying, Pastor, are you sure? I just ignored him. I ignored him because I didn't believe him. Suddenly, suddenly I saw something, a sign on the road, and I said to him, I am so sorry you are right. I am moved. We're going in the wrong direction. And the moment I believed him, the moment I believed him, I pulled into the next driveway, turned around, and started driving in the opposite direction. I repented. I was moving in the wrong direction. But the reason I kept moving in the wrong direction was because of my unbelief. I did not believe what he told me, and what he told me was the truth. I didn't believe it. But the moment I believed it, I turned around and started moving in the right direction. That's our story. By nature, we are all moving in the wrong direction. The dreadful thing of our sinnership is that we ignore the truth. We ignore the Word of God. We turn a deaf ear to what God is saying. God who calls us to repentance. We saw it a few weeks ago. A God who swears, <coughs> who swears by His own name. As I live, I have no pleasure in the death of sinners, but that they would turn unto me and live. The whole purpose of the Word of God is to get our attention, to hear the Word of God. That's why God gives us His Word, because He has no pleasure in our death. And He wants us to know that if we continue to move in the wrong direction, if we continue to ignore His Word and turn a deaf ear to what He has to say, we will perish. That's why he said, turn ye, turn ye, for why will you die? Why will you persevere, sinner? Why will you persevere in your chosen pathway that will lead to perdition? So repentance. It would be interesting if I would give all of you a pad of paper and would ask you to define for me what repentance is. So let me again really make clear what is essential for our understanding. So repentance doesn't just mean that we have to clean up our act. Repentance does not mean that we do our best to be a better person. Certainly, repentance includes that we stop doing certain things, that we no longer commit certain sins. But let me emphasize again, which has been very helpful to me many years ago already. 
I've quoted this passage before, but I'll do it again. In 1 Thessalonians 1, verse 9, a very important verse for you to remember. So how does Paul describe the conversion of the Thessalonians? In very simple words. He said, how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God. Notice what he does not say. He does not say how you turned from idols to God. No, how you turned to God from idols. A congregation, that's so important. And so when God calls us to repentance, he tells us first of all to turn to him. It's first of all God is saying, sinner, no longer Stand with your back towards me. Sinner, turn around and come to me and face me. Sinner, no longer ignore me. Consider who I am. Humble yourself before me. Take your proper place before me. Because you see, when that happens, when we turn to God... When we humble ourselves before him. That's when sin becomes real, you see. It's when God becomes real. When God becomes real, sin becomes real. We must see sin in light of who God is. And when we begin to see our sin the way he sees it, you see, that will motivate us to break with our sins. So it's the turning to God that motivated the Thessalonians to forsake their idols. That's what repentance is. So when God calls us to repent, when Christ here calls us to repent, He's not saying, do your best to be a better person. Do a best and clean up your act. Scan your life and see all the things that you should no longer be doing. Try to become a better person. That's not what repentance means. Repentance means that we change our mind about God in the first place. And when we change our mind about God by the grace of God, we will change our mind about sin. And so the forsaking of sin flows out of the fact that we come face to face with our maker. That's why David says in Psalm 51, and he humbles himself before God, he said against thee, thee only have I sinned and done this evil in thy sight. That's what Jesus means. He is saying, unless you come face to face with God unless you acknowledge who He is, unless you recognize what He says in His Word about Himself, unless you come face to face with your Maker and humble yourself before Him, confessing your sins and believing His Word, you shall likewise perish. Christ here speaks with, with great urgency. He wants to be understood. He repeats himself. He repeats the exact words. He says it twice. He wants to make sure that his audience really understands the urgency of this moment. That's the urgency that we must feel as God's servants when we stand before you. Realizing, realizing that without exception, death is in your future. And when that death will occur, I do not know. And boys and girls, young people, death is in your future. That's not a pleasant message. We don't like to hear about death. We don't like to hear about dying. It's so unnatural. But we must, we must face it. You must face it as young as you are. Your life 
can suddenly come to an end. There could be some tower that's going to fall on your head. Some tragedy that will strike. And you see, Christ's urgency was motivated by the fact that he knew better than anyone else what awaits the unrepentant sinner. He knew that if we perish, if we die in our sins, that hell is our future. That's what made his ministry so urgent. And that's why a number of years ago, I may have told you this before, but a number of years ago at an office bearers conference, the pastor who was leading it, he began his, his presentation by saying, brothers, do you believe in hell? He got very quiet. He said, why do I ask this? He said, unless you believe in hell, there will be no urgency to your ministry. The reason we are engaged in our ministry, the reason we preach the gospel, because we know that our people to whom we preach, unless they believe that gospel, they will perish. That made a deep impression on us. Of course, repentance implies faith because that's really our chief sin. That's what keeps us from repenting. It's that wretched sin of unbelief, that fundamental disposition of the human heart. Let me say it again. That's why it's much more convenient, you see, to call yourself unconverted. When you say, I'm, I'm unconverted, I've experienced this many times, people are really saying, well, God hasn't converted me. But the Bible does not talk about converted and unconverted people. It talks about believers and unbelievers. We just read it from Luke 12. When you're unconverted, that's because you're an unbeliever. Your unconverted state, your unrepentant state is but a manifestation of your unbelieving heart. That's the issue. And John 3 verse 36 uses that profound word that means that we refuse to be persuaded. That's it. The natural man refuses to be persuaded by the Word of God. So desperately wicked is the heart of man. And unbelief means, therefore, that we treat God as a liar. That's the Word of God. That's not my word. We treat Him as a liar. As a matter of fact, every time we sin, we treat God as a liar. Every time we sin, we disregard the Word of God. That's our root sin. It's unbelief. It was my unbelief that kept me from turning around. I didn't believe what my elder was telling me. And the moment I believed it, I turned around. And I realized that repentance is the work of God's Spirit, but that does not take away from our responsibility. Christ does not here suggest that we should simply wait until God turns us. No, he said, unless you repent with urgency, you shall all likewise perish. But the implication, of course, is that if we do repent, if we turn unto the living God, if we humble ourselves before Him, if we do give heed to His Word, we will find Him to be a very gracious God who delights in mercy. The implication is, and that's here, is that if we do repent, we will not perish. Because he that believeth in the Son of God will not perish, but have eternal life. That's why repentance has been called the gateway to pardon and reconciliation. That's why Jesus sent his disciples into the world 
He said, you have to preach repentance and remission of sins. Those two belong inseparably together. Because repentance and faith, as I've said before, are Siamese twins, two sides of one coin. True repentance is an act of faith. And faith will always be an act of repentance. Those two belong inseparably together. That's why the message of repentance is of such great importance. I'm just going to read a quote to you from Philip Henry, the father of Matthew Henry, who said this. Some people do not like to hear much of repentance, but I think it is so necessary that if I should die in the pulpit, I should desire to die preaching repentance. And if I should die out of the pulpit... I should desire to die practicing it. Because in a sense, that's the life of the believer. The life of the believer is a lifelong repetition of repentance. We, we need to repent our entire life. One of the early church fathers said, we are born to repent. Unless Except ye repent, you shall likewise perish. No doubt, these words also had a prophetic element. Christ knew what was coming. Because in 70 AD, when Titus led the Romans to utterly destroy Jerusalem, we know that at least 300,000 Jews were slaughtered at the Passover. And again, their blood was mingled with the blood of the Passover. And there's also a record that at least 87 of 90 towers that surrounded Jerusalem, they all collapsed and many, many perished. Jesus knew that. He knew what was coming. It was as if he was saying, Forget about these Galileans. Forget about the people who died because of the tower. Your turn is coming as well. If you do not repent, you will perish just like they perished. And sadly, that was fulfilled. And that's the message of all the tragedies. God is calling sinners to repentance. Psalm 90, verse 3, we sang it together. Thou turnest man to destruction and sayest, Return, ye children of men. It has a double meaning. It means that God sovereignly directs human beings to return to the dust from which they came. But it also means repent, sinner. Repent. Let the reality of men dying all around you let that be a reminder that you need to repent. And so, my dear congregation, boys and girls, young people, what is your spiritual condition today? Especially if you've been raised under the gospel. 1 Peter 4, verse 17, what shall be the end of them that obey not the gospel of God. Those are weighty words, congregation. What shall be the end of them that obey not the gospel of God? And so if you go lost, my friend, it's not because God did not convert you. It's not because you were not chosen. It's not because the Spirit of God did not work to you. If you perish, you will perish because you did not obey the gospel of God. You will be damned because of your unbelief. Oh, Christ repeats himself because the matter is urgent. For all repentant sinners, it is true. What I once saw on a billboard, it said, you are one heartbeat away from heaven or hell. Which will it be for you? One heart beat away. Ezekiel 18 verse 30, repent 
and turn yourselves from your transgressions, so iniquity shall not be your ruin. Oh, the point Jesus is making, and I've said it several times, any time a tower can fall on us. Turn with me to Ecclesiastes 9, verse 12, which powerfully affirms that. Ecclesiastes 9, verse 12. A remarkable passage. Passage that would be good for fathers and mothers to discuss with their children today. For man also knoweth not his time. We don't know the time of our end. The Galileans didn't. The people that were killed by the Tower of Siloam didn't. The people who were killed on October 7 did not know their time. Look at the, look at the analogies that, that Solomon uses here. As the fishes that are taken in an evil net. And as the birds that are caught in a snare. So think about it. The fish are merrily swimming in the water. They don't see the net. And suddenly, they're caught in it. End of story. And the birds, who are flying merrily, and who fail to realize there's someone out there to snare them, and suddenly, they are snared. So, he says, so are the sons of men snared in an evil time when it falleth suddenly upon them. That's why the Word of God says, also to you young people, boys and girls, now is the accepted time. Now. Today, if you hear my voice, harden not your heart, but turn unto me and live. To delay is dangerous because we do not know. We do not know our time. It's possible there's someone here who will be buried by next Sunday. That's possible. That's happened to me numerous times in my ministry. I had someone in my audience one Sunday who was buried by the next Sunday. We do not know our time. And I'm not preaching this because I want to scare you. I'm following the example of my master. I feel something of his urgency. And my friend, that's why we need to know on biblical grounds that we are reconciled with God. And so have you. Have you humbled yourself before God? Have you acknowledged your sinnership? Have you confessed your sins? Have you, have you as, a, as a needy sinner, have you taken refuge to the Lord Jesus Christ who is offered so freely in the gospel to whom we may come without delay, without money and without price? Oh, when Jesus says, come unto me, all ye that are labor and are heavy laden, he is using a powerful word. He's saying, sinner, come to me at once. Come to me without delay. Come to me today, for today is the accepted time. Today is the day of salvation. And so my final question is, boys and girls, young people, congregation, is it well with your soul? Is it well with your soul? Are you reconciled with God? Have you found salvation in the Lord Jesus Christ? He that believeth on the Son hath life. He that believeth not the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. Oh, the point of this passage is there's not one unrepentant sinner that can escape the judgment of God. May it not be true of you that God gave you a lifetime of space to repent, that you would die, and that the final assessment would be he or she repented not. And so, Christ is saying, forget about why all these people are dying. 
Focus on yourself. Kelvin has a remarkable statement here. He said, every man that is not sorely pressed by the hand of God slumbers at ease in the midst of his sins. That's it. We slumber at ease in the midst of our sins. And that's why these, these stunning events that are happening regularly are meant to be a wake-up call. These are the words of a Savior who stood before Jerusalem and who wept over Jerusalem. Oh, he said, if thou hadst known, even thou, at least this thy day, the things which belong unto thy peace. And so the word of Christ comes to all of us. Except you repent, you shall all likewise perish. Amen. Let's pray. Gracious God, bring this word beyond the outward ear, this urgent word of Christ, this convicting word of Christ, this word that confronts us with the important question. Am I reconciled with my maker? Am I prepared to meet my maker if death should overtake me? Lord, use this word even today. Remember us that none would perish here that have heard this word, that none would have to hear in the day of judgment, I gave you space to repent, but you repented not. Oh, gracious God, Wilt thou accompany thy own word that's coming from thy own lips, accompany it with divine power, that today we would turn to thee from our idols, that today we would humble ourselves before thee and cry out with the publican, O God, be merciful to me, the sinner. Bless us now as we depart. We pray for that blessing upon the instruction to our young people and our children. Bless that instruction and use thy word to make our children, our young people, wise unto salvation. And gather with us again in this evening hour. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.